Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm Ed Hammond, your host this week, and joining me, I'm very excited about this, joining me this week is Jason Kelly, our bureau chief here in New York. Hello, Ed. Hello. We're, so we're going we're gonna to be doing something a bit different this week. We're going to try and cover uh, a lot of stories in a relatively short space of time. Um, and the obvious place to start is merger monday although we're now on tuesday and i think this thing actually goes out on wednesday it is merger monday because we had two big deals announced on monday it's also um according to bloomberg's own data the hottest start for the year in MA since 2000 i think we have 152.5 billion dollars of deals already well and as as all this was starting you know sort of sunday night into monday morning you did sort of get this feel of like yeah you know it's like 2018 you know some things are happening you got big name deals we're talking about billion dollar deals you know a, an 11 plus billion dollar deal a crazy uh, deal in, in one a cra- case. I, i'm going to i'm going to go out on the limit right because we're not supposed to do this as as M&A reports we're supposed to be completely objective on deals but this is a crazy deal the premium the premium that is being paid by Celgene for Juno is 91% and Juno was already a hot stock. This was a stock that had traded up a ton because people expected an M&A outcome here. And they're paying 91% above the closing price of the day before they announced deal, which is maybe not, maybe it's not insane. It seems insanely high. I think it's the highest premium paid in history, certainly in the history of biotech M&A, which is already fairly buzzy. So I don't know what that tells us about where we are in the market, but it certainly seems to point towards uh, fairly aggressive pricing for, for sellers. Well, so let me ask you this question. Like, you saw that deal come out, and that was on the heels of the Santa Fe deal, mm-hmm. which grabbed a lot of headlines for kind of a different reason, right? I mean, this was a deal that, re- that they needed to do a, a deal, right? Yeah, so, so the Santa Fe deal is a really interesting one. So Santa Fe, um, they're kind of like a terrible acquirer. And they uh, it's a question of whether or not they were terribly advised or whether they just didn't listen to the good advice they were getting and, and kept messing things up. So yeah, they had tried to buy a company called Medivation in 2016. They had then come in to try and uh, break up J&J's deal for uh, a very big company, a $30 billion company called Actillion, uh, very early in 2017. Both times they failed. And, and interestingly, both times they failed for exactly the same reason, which was that they tried to do this contingent value right as part of the consideration. So they effectively came in and said, we're going to offer you a huge price. But guess what? Part of that price is going to be in the form of CVR, which you're only going to get if X, Y, and Z happens after we consummate this deal. And the market had kind of lost faith in Sanofi's ability to execute deals. They were like, these guys are cowboys. They show up seemingly with a hot hand, but actually they're trying to put this sort of quirky structure into deals. So they needed to do a deal. They needed to prove to their own investors, probably to themselves, that they could actually get this thing done. Interestingly, um, and this is kind of M&A Geek 101, they changed their advisors on this deal. So they traditionally been using Morgan Stanley. I think the two failed previous deals, Morgan Stanley were there. This time they used Lazard. Whether or not that had anything to do with it, I wouldn't possibly speculate, but I thought it was an interesting well, I, interesting tweak. I was also sort of taken by this idea, and you touched on this a little bit just now, that sort of this idea that in order to kind of prove your worth as a management team, especially in this part of the world, like you need to prove that you can pull off some deals. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, like in the world of healthcare, and especially in pharma, and especially in drugs, like you really like this is this is part of something that is just you got to do it. Like you got to do, do it. You got to do it well. Um, and and investors, it feels like look at one's ability to pull off deals in this sector maybe more than they do elsewhere. I think in this sector, particularly in M- in sort of markets generally across sectors at the moment, you've got to be able to do, do M and A. It's it's got to be like a core part of every management team's toolbox because 
investors are rewarding companies for going out and doing deals. The other thing you're seeing is because you're getting deals in every sector, the companies, the, there is a, how to put this, there is a real cost to doing nothing, I think, yeah. as a management team. And whether that's that an activist shows up and makes you do something, whether it's that your investors just get sick of the fact that, you know, they're seeing all the rival companies go and do M&A and being rewarded and you guys are not. But there is a cost to standing still. So look, Sanofi, they had to do it. Okay, so I, I want to tee off of something that you just said, which is, you know, this is happening across sectors. You got to prove you can do a deal. You have to think that investment bankers across Wall Street, in the city, all around the world, loved this Bloomberg headline that said, deal makers off to the hottest start of the year since 2000. Like, that's the sort of thing that- Get some jazzed. Honestly, like, if you're having drinks at the Oyster Bar, whatever you're doing, over any interaction you're having either with another banker or with another CEO, like- you're pretty excited right now, I think, if you're an investment banker. Right? I think I think you're pretty excited. This, this is weird, and, and you'll get this as someone who's covered the street for a long time. Investment bankers will tell you things are going great when they're going terribly. Right. Right. So every year we start the year, and however well or badly things are going or have gone the previous year, they'll say things are great. Things are looking up this year. We're expecting to see a lot of deals. Stars are going to line, blah, blah, blah. Now stars have aligned, and we are seeing all these deals. It's quite interesting. They're, they're, they're being, I don't know what the term is, like cautiously optimistic. There's some of the... Um, some of the sort of exuberance that we normally see seems to have actually gone down. And maybe this is just reverse posturing by investment bankers. Um, but I want to talk about something that you know tons about, which obviously is private equity. You wrote the book on private equity. Um, you know these guys better than probably anyone at Bloomberg. And they are kind of slightly unique in this deal market as they've struggled because valuations are so high. Yeah. Right? I, I mean, private equity has... It, it's. I'm obviously like a total geek about this stuff, and you know, I've followed it pretty closely for the last 10 years, and and that has been one of the most fascinating 10 years, especially if you go back 12, and I was fiddling around the Bloomberg this morning, and I was looking back uh, at some of the data, and you really see this trend really going up after it dropped off in 2008. So yeah. 2006 and 2007, w- historians will look back and say that was the probably the peak, at least of our era uh, for private equity. It was the biggest deals of all time. You know, this was the TXUs, the Clear Channels, the Caesars, First Data, Toys R Us, like all of these like big brand name companies uh, going. And they've all done really well. Private. Let's be clear, right? Ch- Clear Channel, TXU, <laughs> Toys R Us. These are success Just stories. Crushing it, crushing it. No, we're being sarcastic. Um, and yet, you know, some of them did. To be fair to to the deal makers, some of them did do ultimately pretty well. Hilton, I think, being yep. one of the the real uh, standout deals. And you know, people made their careers. John Gray at Blackson really made his career in in many ways. And, and we should that flag deal. that, right? Because real estate continues to be an area where private equity do play well. Yes. And they have been able to do deals throughout the cycle. They, they've they not been priced out of stuff. They've continued to buy stuff. Then Blackstone probably is, I mean, I don't know how weighted they are towards real estate now, but at one point it was more than 50% of their assets. Right. So at this point, you know, Blackstone, while we still think of it as a, as a private equity shop, is is a big alternative asset management firm, to, that, which is a mouthful. It's a big investment firm that that does real estate is one of the one of the things they do that does private equity that does hedge funds right. and that does credit and so you know and th- this is a subject for like another day but like the diversification of the big guys in private equity is is the story of a, of our time mm-hmm. when it comes to the us nerds who follow this but you know one of the things that has not happened and and you alluded to this earlier is that you know private equity hasn't done those sort of headline grabbing deals you know i was i was thinking about this as i looked at this this data that you know we get excited about a, a 5 or 6 billion dollar lbo at this point like 2007 5 or 6 billion dollars like i wasn't getting out of bed for that it just wasn't that exciting um and yet here comes private equity 
all over again. Now, they are feeling a ton of pressure, as you know, because they have raised still massive funds. They've continued to raise a lot of money. And this whole element of dry powder weighs very, very heavily um, because they got to put the money to work. You know, these are they usually have five years to invest. You know, these are these are 10 year funds. So, so look, the, they're the smart starts guys, ticking. right? They're going to find a way to put their money to work. They always do, whether it's going out and they're going to do some like weird esoteric finance structure for a lawnmower company or something. There will be, there will be a route. But what do they do? What are you hearing from the private equity guys about how they actually go and deploy this capital? Because it is a struggle. It is a total struggle. And part of it, I think, and we've seen this a bit over the past few years, and it'll be interesting to see if it accelerates now, is they have to go back to the kind of original private equity playbook. And a lot of that has to do with going to a big company and saying, hey, you're maybe not paying so much attention to this little unit here. Why don't we Take it off your hands, carve it out. It's a carve out is the is the term of art uh, in the private equity world and the deal making world, as you know. And you know, we'll either you know take it public or we'll do something that uh, makes it you know a, a really good investment ultimately for for our investors. And it and it takes it off your hands. So that's kind of one element of deal making um, that we could see. But those deals are harder and harder, and they're going to be competing against strategic buyers as well. And that's really what has kept them off the sidelines a bit. It sounds so much less fun than taking TXU private or Toys R Us. Totally, yeah. totally, absolutely. Yeah. Or Weather Channel or J Crew. You know, I mean, that was the thing that really thrust private equity into the spotlight back in 06 and 07 is that, you know, they were taking all these companies private. You know, they were buying all these companies that, you know, people really knew what they were, you know, and they were yeah. interacting. Household names. Household names, absolutely. And, household, and, household and, names. and now some of them bankrupt household names. Um, okay, so... The other thing that really caught our eye, uh, and we, Jason and I actually were talking about this yesterday because it was a story speculating. Today it was confirmed, the news that uh, Twitter's CFO, Anthony Noto, formerly of Goldman Sachs, is moving to SoFi or social finance. Now, I had to the, 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 confess, I'm, as I'm not a millennial, I had to look up what SoFi actually is. They are the, <laughs> You're not a millennial? No. Well, I think technically I probably am, but I know there are other people who are much younger than me that refer to themselves as millennials, so I've, I've never really found it an appropriate determination. Um, SoFi describes, or we describe SoFi, I should say, sorry, as having a vision for becoming the financial supermarket for millennials. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds exciting. Um, but Anthony Noto is a he's a real guy, right? He's like a he's like a very 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 big ex Wall Street guy. I knew him sort of way back when he was the he was like the king of take publics. He yeah, was, he was the guy you went to if you wanted to take your company public and you wanted it to do well in an IPO. Now. SoFi is interesting because SoFi is one of these companies that's been speculated about forever. Is like it should go public. It sounds like they've delayed their IPO. I was actually looking this morning. They probably have good reasons for that because if you look at Lending Club, which is the obvious analog, Lending Club went public end of 2014. They are down 72% since then. So it's not been a great market for them to go public in. But what do we know at this point, Jason, about what Anthony Noto is going to do it so far. So we don't know a lot about what he's going to do. What what we do know is that, as you say, he is probably the brand name Wall Street guy who works in Silicon Valley. He's the best known, you know, kind of Wall Street refugee who has made his name really running a company. You know, you feel like and you talk to bankers all the time, and and even the private equity guys that I talk to, you know, they fancy themselves people, you know, who could go in and and run a company. Noto really, for all intents and purposes, has been running Twitter. He's the chief operating officer of Twitter, was until today. And, you know, he's running a company whose CEO also is the CEO of another company, Jack Dorsey, you know, CEO of Twitter, CEO of Square. So it's safe to say that 
You know, Noto has had a lot of responsibility there at Twitter. This feels like an opportunity for him to really have the top job and to put to work exactly that skill set that you talked about, which is he takes companies public. I mean, that's what he used to do as a banker. Um, That was, you know, his capital markets experience was one of the things that made him attractive to go work at Twitter. And that's clearly what what SoFi is going for And he took them public, right? He was the the mastermind behind that. Twitter, I was just pulled up stock. So Twitter this morning down about 3%. Obviously, this company has sort of struggled um, a lot in the past couple of years and and noto leaving is something that investors um, understandably are, are not too happy about one one thing that jumped out to me about the sofi story that i thought was interesting was so the ceo of sofi had left um because the company was like so many uh, it seems like so many companies and so many industries at the moment was embroiled in a um, a sort of sexual harassment scandal um, I wanted to give a shout out to this story I read uh, in the journal by, among others, Liz Hoffman, uh, who's a great reporter over there, about sort of Wall Street sexual harassment and why Wall Street hasn't really kind of been in the eye of that storm yet. And to me, this is a fascinating question. Look, this is something for for another podcast, a much longer podcast potentially, but it's so interesting that Wall Street thus far has kind of seem to have avoided it. It has avoided it so far. And in our own Max Abelson did some really nice reporting about this as well uh, a couple weeks ago. And you do get the sense as you talk to people on Wall Street that there may be some other shoes that are that are going to drop. But let's also remember that that Wall Street has had to process this over the past couple decades. You know, you go back to like the boom boom room stories and, and things like that. You know, this was not a this this was not a foreign concept, sadly, uh, on Wall Street for for a long time. And, you know, I think what a lot of the banks would tell you is that they have taken a lot of steps over the years to try and weed out um, some of this behavior. Um, having said that, it's hard to imagine that some of this isn't going on in, in some of some corners uh, of Wall Street. So we'll see how, how all this plays out with Twitter. I mean, one, one thing, uh, Twitter and SoFi for, for that thing, one, one thing we should mention is that you know, Bloomberg LP does have uh, an existing relationship with Twitter for our uh, TikTok product. So in the interest of disclosure. We do. That is it. Sorry, I should have done that as the, um, I suppose, technically as the host, that should have been on me. So very well said. Um, so... Okay, so 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 another story that has been personally very interesting to me because I, I you know uh, I broke it, so I should I'm going to take some credit for that was uh, the the activist showing up in Lowe's, and I, I use, love this story. This I is use, so yeah, I use activist carefully, right? Because we we chased and chased and chased this story for for really a long time. I think first heard about it in kind of late last year, and have been chasing it ever since. And we were looking for a t- traditional activist. So we were going through, you know, the people you would expect to show up in an $80 billion retail company and, and shake them up. And it wasn't any of them. And it really kind of was a difficult one to knock over. And then in the end, um, we found out that it was D.E. Shaw, who are a, you know, they're a quant fund. Didn't they're, see that one coming. They're, right? No, they're not an activist fund. This is a new thing for them. And it's, an, you know, it's a, more interestingly, it's a new entrant and a very deep-pocketed entrant uh in the activist market, so it's it's fascinating. But I, I suppose what's what's really interesting here is that they have successfully behind the scenes negotiated this settlement with Lowe's. Lowe's are going to put three new directors on the board. Really interestingly, this is a comeback of sorts for relational investors, which you may remember yeah. it was uh, right. It was this, this sort of original activist fund started by Ralph Whitworth, who sadly passed away. Um, one of the directors is coming on. Um, 
from and he's a former relational guy he had also formerly been on the board on the board of, of home, home depot, depot that was right? the thing that like as i'm looking at my notes here that was the thing that like i went through and highlighted that to me is so interesting and and there's so much to unpack with this story in part because you know de shaw which as you mentioned nobody really saw coming and yet what they had quietly done is they had hired this guy who had worked for paul singer at elliot right. to start this platform and you would think in some ways that this is going the opposite direction of where you would see a hedge fund go you know that an activist might say you know what like activism is really tough right now why don't we hire some smart quants and that can sort of balance out our approach in this case you have de shaw going exactly the the other way and getting into the activism game and that, you know, going super macro on this, to me, that makes me appreciate the whole active-passive debate in kind of an entirely different context. Well, is there a difference anymore? I mean, it's 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 blurred so much. We saw this with, I mean, Newberger Berman on, uh, on Whole Foods, and you've seen it with people like T-Row, where they're kind of, you know, whether they're active or whether they just have the sort of attack dog activist on the leash, like, they're driving the bus. So it, that line, I remember when I started writing about activist investors, it was very clear. You had your activists and your passives. Yeah. And now, I don't know, it feels yeah, like Yeah, I mean, I do think that there. this speaks to kind of a broader existential debate that's happening in the broader world of hedge funds, right? I mean, you look at some of the names who really had bad 2017s, you know, whether um, you know whether it was Bill Ackman, who there was some news about uh, yesterday we can, we can get we, to. I want to hit on that because yeah. Yeah, any, any bad Bill Ackman news is fun news for me. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the reality is, is that as you look across how hedge funds can really justify the big fees that they pay, how they can really put big numbers on the board, that's getting more and more difficult. And part of that is just the economics of the market that we're living in. 2017 was a year where volatility essentially didn't exist, and that's where hedge funds thrive. And so these guys are looking for ways to differentiate themselves. You know, you've got some new uh, people either coming onto the scene, few new people, but people you know coming back on the scene. Stevie Cohen now managing outside money again are about to unbelievable, and which is an amazing story. And again, a podcast um, for another day. But sort of filtering all this through, activism does feel like a place where people can make money and can make those big bets that we associate with the really successful hedge funds of yore. And it's so much. I mean, I, mean, I don't know where the media strategy really comes into this, but like, it's so much more um, headline grabbing, and that probably helps a little bit going out to raise money. That you can come out and say something like, um, so it, the guy is called Quinton Coffey, the uh, activist who is is in great name sure. by the way. It's a great name for an activist, and he has come out and he said he likes that Lowe's are being you know good and settling and putting people on the board, but he thinks his stock can triple. In yeah. Value. That's pretty bold. It's an $80 billion market cap company. Think of that. It'll be triple in value. So just just for point of reference, his his case is really that, you know, look, you have Home Depot as, as the closest company to this. Home Depot do a much better job, um, particularly on margins. I was looking up the EBITDA margin this morning. Home Depot about 16.5 times. Lowe's about 11.4. So there obviously is work to do there. Obviously, his claim that they can triple in value is a big one we will um yeah and i like i like this in part i mean this this gets i'm an ex expatriate southerner living in living in new york for the last decade and you know the lowe's home depot rivalry you know you got lowe's up in north carolina you got home depot um down in atlanta you know they're slugging it out kind of these sunbelt based companies in in a home improvement market they had such a, a massive run during the the housing boom of the early 2000s Home Depot has minted, you know, a couple billionaires, including Arthur Blank, who owns the Atlanta Falcons. Like, I could go on and on about just what a fascinating...
fascinating corporate story this is. And, you know, we we don't have a lot of big bad rivalries anymore you know it's like i grew up in the coke and pepsi days and you know there just aren't as many of these where you you've just got as as we say around college football just good old-fashioned hate between companies a sort of uh, a dueling duopoly exactly so it will be interesting it'll be very interesting to see what the activists can do here and you know so far it looks like lows are going to play ball whether or not that continues um i guess we'll all have to wait and see but activists you can't think of activists without talking about Ackman. I know. Um, Ackman back in the news and and back in the news, unfortunately, for the wrong reasons, um, came out yesterday that he had laid off 10, uh, 10 sorry, members of staff, which, uh, according to reports, represents about 18% of his total headcount. Now, this comes after Ackman had yet another bad year. His fund was down, I think we reported 3.2% in 2017 versus the market being uh, slightly up. Obviously, a lot of other activists were up a lot. Um, he had some he had some losses last year. I mean, he had ADP, which we reported quite heavily on, which was sort of a win, but also sort of a loss because he said a lot of things uh, which they said were wrong. Yeah, and that was a win-ish. You know? A, a win-ish. Mean, Let's go with that. A win-ish sounds a bit better. Um, so and what Chipotle, do we think? obviously. I and mean, Chipotle. Like, Chipotle. Yeah. Well, Chipotle, he was unlucky because Chipotle, he probably had some good ideas and then there was the whole E. coli thing and uh, I think that was yeah, bad Yeah, you can't him. really predict getting the, he, you know, people He is also, of course, result. still on the wrong end of this uh, lawsuit um, or potentially on the wrong end of this lawsuit, we should say, um, with Valiant shareholders right. um, and, and Allegan shareholders who feel that he was uh, potentially doing some insider trading. But we, we probably shouldn't go too much into that because uh, there's always a risk that we'll say something we shouldn't. So that's uh, – that, anyway, so he, he had another difficult year and on the back of that has laid off some people. So the thing that was and, – and again, I'm, I'm giving credit to other reporting outlets, which I probably shouldn't do with the bureau chief on the, on the show, <laughs> but nonetheless. The Post, um, as you would expect with a story like this, uh, went down and they did a very good job of it. And they reported that he fired his driver and will henceforth be taking the subway to work. Well – it, it, there's, so, there's so many things I, I, I love about this. I mean, one of the things that's always fascinated me about Wall Street, and I think you too, is these larger-than-life characters. And Ackman certainly is, is one of them. The largest in some ways. In many ways. And and to me, one of the things that really jumped out, driver notwithstanding, is this notion that you know he is really stepping back from kind of this public role and being out on the road, and that he's going to kind of plant himself in his office and and do some you know some honest to honest to goodness sort of financial analysis here which presumably is got got him where he got to except and I think you with all your experience in activism uh, and covering activism appreciate part of it is the show right I mean part of it is the the big bold statement you know going back to what you were saying about DE Shaw and Lowe's you know sort of throwing down this call and saying this this company should be worth triple And part of what makes Ackman Ackman are these big bets. And so if you if you see him sort of squirreled away in his office, like that's not the Ackman that we know. And so that that doesn't quite or what jive with me. Really? Correct. Ackman is. So you're right. It's big bets, but it's big narratives. Right. You know what? What's so great? And, and, you know, look, I do give Ackman a hard time for for some of these these misses on on the bets he takes but he's such an interesting character he came in here on ADP he came to talk to a bunch of us and every single person who came out that meeting was like wow this guy's a genius this is the best idea everything he said makes sense he is a quintessential salesman right he, he, he can go and raise money because he's so good at talking up these ideas and actually spinning a great great story and so taking the
pushing the salesman off the road and, Doesn't make and sense putting him behind a desk. Just I, I don't know if I don't know if that feels right. So it'll be interesting to see 2018 and maybe into 2019 playoff. Like, can you keep a player like that off the field? And if somebody from Pershing Square shows up and, and look, we I've seen this in, in the private equity world for a long time. You know, these are personality driven firms, you know, and people want to see the guy. You know, right. they want to see the David Rubenstein, the Henry Kravitz, the Steve Schwartzman. And in the world of hedge funds, I think activism, it's that much more pointed. You know, like that that point of view and that narrative, as you say, is so critical um, to success. And, and candidly, critical to convincing people to give you money that you can then go make those big bets with. So it doesn't, there's something here that just doesn't feel like it's going to work to me. And also, who else at Pershing is going to go on stage for, I think it was within four hours, three hours, four hours that he went on stage and talked about his valiant bet and why it was the smartest thing ever. And I think he, he got so emotional, he actually started crying on stage. So yeah. that was, you know, the, the, we we need characters like this. We, yes. particularly in the media, we thrive well, on journalists characters like we, this. We, the, the, yeah. This is literally our living. We, so, 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 Bill, if you're listening, please get back out on the road. And I would I would just state one more thing. I would, uh, a competition for all of our listeners out there. Um, the first person to send in a picture of Bill Ackman riding on the subway, um, we will figure out some kind of reward for so, Jason, thank you very much for joining me. That was great fun. We um, we sadly have to come to the end of the episode now. So until next time on Deal of the Week, that's it from us. You can find me on Twitter at EdHammondNY. Uh, you can find Jason on Twitter at... At Jason Kelly News. I'd like to thank our producer for the show, Magnus Henriksen. Thank you. 